Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 3. God breathed out a book of wisdom, and we have it in front of us in the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, this is the word of God as breathed out by him, starting in verse 27. This is God's word. Do not withhold good from whom... From those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. And do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. And do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence." The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your words of wisdom. May we not only sit around them this morning, but under them. May they have their way in our lives as you speak through them this morning. And we pray that you would do it all to receive glory and honor that you deserve. Amen. You've probably heard that uh, positive commands are more effective than negative commands. And while we may agree with the sentiment of that, I don't think that you can separate the two, that they need to go together. It sounds good to say, You know, tell me what you're for, not just what you're against. But ultimately, those two can't be separated either. They go together, that both positive and negative commands go together, that that what you're for is tied to what you're against as well. Not always in a one-to-one relationship, but they work together. And both positive and negative commands are both working, both going together to mold an individual rightly as they are meant to be molded. So yeses and nos are both needed in our lives. At least God thought so. There are a whole lot of you shall not in the scripture. And the Proverbs agrees with this. We have a whole list of do nots. That is that the wise are known for the things that they do. Seeking after wisdom, walking in a certain way. But they're also known for what they do not do. And here we have a whole lot of do nots. The wise and wisdom leads into our lives to behavior, and it's inevitably connected and intricately connected to our behavior. And so in that behavior, there's going to be a whole lot of do's, but there's also going to be a whole lot of do-nots, and we're not afraid or think negatively of either one of them. Give us the negative commands. If it's from the Lord, that's what we'd like to hear. Give us the positive ones as well. We want them both. We know that they go together. And here, the sagely father gives some do-nots to us, to any who would hear, Because wisdom has a lot of things that it does not do. And so what wisdoms do not begin with here in chapter 3 at the end of this chapter is not with concern with right relationship to God, although it's not separated from that. It's not with concern to personal security, although again, not completely separated that, but it's concerned primarily with love of neighbor in verse 27. It says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. And do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you. There's two do nots here, but I think they go together into kind of one big do not for the wise. There are many things that the the wise are to be known for and are to do. 
There are indeed many things that the, the wisdom will withhold. So withhold all the evil in you. Don't need to spew that out on anybody. Right? Withhold all of these things that could hurt and harm other people, but do not withhold what is good. Good is not one to withhold. Good is to flow from the wise. And the good spoken of here, I think, is a tangible good. That's why in verse 28 it says that don't say come again tomorrow when you have it with you. There's something you have with you. You need to give it up. But I don't think that Proverbs is in any way limiting it to like tangible things that are good. I think that there's all sorts of ways that we could talk about what is good that can be given. I think Proverbs is, is giving general principles. It isn't trying to define every scenario. It's not trying to give every detail. It's trying to give us a, a, some parameters. So the, the wise are those who should be letting the good flow from them to other people. Proverbs is not asking us to give something we don't have. It says when it's in your power to do it. It's not saying that you have to give all the time. Sometimes you don't have it. There are times of receiving. There are times of giving. It's okay to be in either one. But if you have it, and if it's in your power to give it, then you are to do it. So wisdom lets goodness flow when it can, where it can, for the good of a neighbor, for the good of others. But there's a qualification given here. I don't know if you... Notice it when we read through it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. To those to whom it is due. In verse 28, I think it fills in a little bit of that detail by saying this is a a neighbor, so someone that's in close relationship to you, but I I think it also could be one to whom you have an obligation. Perhaps you're an employer who has an employee, and they're saying, hey, I, I need to be paid. And he says, if you have the power to do it, like do it. It's due to them. They are owed their wages. Or perhaps you've loaned out some money or been loaned out some money and you need repayment for that. That's another scenario where you see like if it's in your power, it is due to them, give it to them. I think that it could stretch even further to say maybe it's justice to someone. Stand up and do rightly, act rightly, exercise justice. That could be good to whom it is due. But again, I don't think there's any need to define every scenario or even to limit to the good that you're trying to not withhold from others. Right? That's what legalists do. They're like, where, where's the line so that I can either go up to it and make sure that I hit it, or I, I want to make sure that I do just enough to get by. That's, that's what legalists are doing. They're, they're constantly obsessed with details. They're, they're inflexible. They're looking for the line so they can go just far enough and make sure they don't go any further than that. But that shouldn't be the heart of the wise. The wise are those who let goodness flow when they can, where they can, to whom they can. And that's what Proverbs is getting at, I think, with this do not withhold. It's not about what line you need to go to, what counts and what doesn't count, or what's tangible and what's not tangible. It's about doing good to others. And this isn't only a concept from Proverbs. I mean, the concept of doing good to others is rooted in the very being and nature of God. Who's God? What's he like? God's this eternally self-existent being who, who didn't need anything, but out of the goodness of his nature and being created the universe. He created people. And everything that he created, he, he makes this announcement over it that it's good. He creates it and then says it's good. It's not just, like, oh, it passes inspection, I guess that'll do. No, it's, it's good. It's got inherent goodness because it came from the source of goodness, God himself. And so he creates and it's good. So God creates out of his goodness, and then he makes things that are good, and then he doesn't withhold those things from us, right? There's this thing we call common grace, which is this, this is for everybody. The taste of food, the, the sun shining, the birds making noise, all these things that can be known and seen by, by anyone that God just gives to us. He, he doesn't owe us this. 
He, he gave them. He, he gave us good. He didn't withhold it from us. He makes his nature known. His divine attributes known in the things that were created. He sends rain, it says, on the just and the unjust. It doesn't just rain in one spot and not in another spot, and that's the just and that's the unjust. It it rains on the just and on the unjust all over. And then in his goodness that he doesn't withhold, he sends his son. He sends his son to not only dwell among us, but to die a sacrificial death for us. So God does not withhold good But we can also say for those who know this Christ, know the one that he sent, know his son, that he doesn't withhold any good thing for all eternity. For those who are in right relationship with God through Jesus, God does not and is not withholding any good thing from you. I love this quote, and I'll probably say it many times to you, so get ready to hear it on repeat, but it's an important one for us to know. It's from John Newton. He said that everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So in other words, everything God sends in his goodness is needed. He's good and he's not withholding it from us. If he doesn't send it, it's not for our good and so that's why he's withholding it. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. God is good and he does not withhold good. Furthermore, to those who are in Christ, we know what Psalm 84 says, that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Not like I'm going to give him most good things and withhold a few. No, if you need it, he's not going to withhold it. We know as Romans eight chapter Romans chapter eight verse thirty two says that he didn't who he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will give us everything that we need. Everything needful, he sins. He does not withhold his good. And so then doesn't it make sense for those who are walking in the fear of the Lord, those who are trying to walk according to wisdom, to also be like that, to not withhold good? So does good flow from your life? Is it flowing to others? Are are you giving good and and letting good go from, from you to others when you can, where you can? Are you mirroring God's goodness in your life and how you live your life out before others? Or we could ask it this way. What good are you withholding? Proverbs says, sagely, the sagely father says, don't do that. Don't withhold it. Walk in the fear of the Lord and let goodness flow from you. But this is not the end of the negative commands that he gives in regard to neighbor. He says in verse 29, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Now that seems like an, an easy one for us. So like, okay, I don't plan evil. Good. But we've seen this a few different times in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 1, verse 10, you hear people coming along and they're tempting in this scenario, but they are planning evil against their neighbors. We saw them again in chapter 2, verse 12. Like, here they are. They're coming. They're men of perverted speech and they're planning evil against their neighbor. And so they're out there and it's seen several times. And we see this throughout the scripture. Here you have Cain and Abel, brothers. Abel is not attacking. He's not antagonistic even toward his brother. He's offering right sacrifices to his Lord. But what does Cain think about this? It angers him. Hate boils up in him and he lashes out against his brother after planning to. You might remember the story of Naboth's vineyard. This is when King Ahab and Jezebel are ruling over Israel. They are infamously evil king and queen of this nation, and they decide to take it out on Naboth. Now, Naboth had a vineyard. It was really close to the king's palace, and Ahab's like, hey, I want your vineyard. And he says, no, I can give up my inheritance. And so that's the end of that. And Ahab goes and sulks to Jezebel. And Jezebel has a a name for a reason, because of the stuff that she does after that. She says, well, why are you sad about it? You're the king. 
Like, let's just fix the problem. And what she does is she figures out a way to destroy Naboth, and then they take the vineyard. They are plotting evil against their neighbor, someone that dwells beside them who has done nothing to them. We know this happens again later on when Jesus is with his disciples, and there's one who's among them who's a betrayer. He's planning evil against his neighbor so that he might gain a foothold, so that he might meet his demise. God hates this. It rips the fabric of community apart and there's to be an understood trust amongst the community, amongst neighbors that, that has to exist, that has to be promoted for every community to just continue to exist. A, a trust where there's, there's no scheming, there's no plotting, there's no unprovoked attacks. Like We shouldn't be scared that when we go to our cars in our houses that someone's just going to come out and attack us. Like, that's, a, that's a society where everything is going to fall apart if that's the case. And the wise are going to be the ones who promote the, the kind of trust that's needed in a community to, to live in right relationship, knowing that relationships are, are built on some sort of trust. And so they're not planning evil against their neighbor because they dwell trustingly beside them. And so if you're, if you're wise, here's what's going to be coming. There, there's going to be some goodness flowing from your life. There's going to be some life-giving qualities about you that, that are actually promoting life in and around you. And that's what the wise are to be about. They, they build a culture of life with others. They're life-giving to others. They're life-promoting to others. They're not planning evil. They're not trying to scheme against them. They're trying to let goodness flow. That's what the wise look like. They also look like verse 30. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. You might remember the story in the book of Esther of Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai was a faithful Israelite who served the Lord God. Haman was a pagan, did not serve God, and didn't appreciate Mordecai moreover. Mordecai didn't attack him. He didn't attack his nation. In fact, Mordecai actually foiled a plot that would have destroyed the king. But that didn't serve for Haman's needs. Haman hates Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't bow down and worship him like he wants. And although Mordecai doesn't attack him, Haman hates him and attempts to kill him. You might remember in the story he builds a huge gallows that he is determined to put Mordecai on. Right? That's what's going on. That's, that's with this contention. Right? You're, you are contending with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Proverbs, I think, drills a little deeper than just not contending to kill him like Haman does with Mordecai. Contend means to not bring an accusation against, even a legal one, without reason, right? You're, you're not bringing anything against them without some really good reason. In other words, he's saying, don't be a fault finder. Don't be looking for something wrong. Don't be a critical spirit. Don't be ready to pounce on someone for some sort of offense. Don't be looking for a reason to even be offended. Now, everyone knows that person, right? And if you don't know that person, it's like, might be you. But even in knowing that person, doesn't that make you that person too? At least a little bit, right? Here we are. We're all in the same category then. We're all here in this, this boat where we're like, oh, yeah, maybe we do contend with people for no reason. Maybe we're a little bit more like Haman than we'd like to admit. There are these parody accounts on social media that you can follow. A few of them are maybe worth your time. I don't want to suggest that they're worth your time. There's one called Church Curmudgeon, and there's another one called Bitter Blue Betty. I didn't look up their best tweets. I tried for a little bit, but then I kind of gave up the search. But here are these, these parody accounts. They're supposed to be Christians in the church, and, and they're tweeting all sorts of different things. They're, they're constantly looking for complaints. 
constantly pointing out flaws in the church and people around them. Most of them's pointing out a youth pastor or the, the worship music, something like that. They're, they're just constantly picking at something, even if it's not relevant to anything at all. And it seems silly to read that on social media and these funny accounts, but isn't that all too real? It's not very funny when it's in a home group and this is happening. People are constantly finding something to find fault with, constantly critical of others. It's not very fun when you're sitting in first Sunday lunch around the table and here we come, bitter blue Betty comes up and sits down and starts finding something wrong and is is telling you why they're offended at everything. I would just say that if you're constantly in contention, if you're you're constantly critical, if you're constantly complaining, then you stop and reflect a little bit. Maybe, maybe see if this isn't more you than you think. Maybe ask, ask some questions of some people that will love you enough to speak the truth into your life and say, am I, am I this person? Am I, am I critical? Am I, am I a constant fault finder? Am I complaining? Am I constantly offended or looking to be offended? Because that's not wise. And we need people to speak life into that. And the, the father here that's speaking says, don't go that way. Don't be the guy that disrupts community in that way. Don't be a fault finder and and a critical spirit. And the the don't is needed. We we, we don't like negative commands maybe, but we need them. Don't is needed because it happens that we're more like Haman and Bitter Blue Betty than we'd like to admit. All of us. Probably more than we even know. And instead, the wise, they promote a culture, again, of life, of goodness flowing, of trust and harmony in community. They don't disrupt community, they, they harmonize community. They, they bring it together. They're not aiming to disrupt or break it down by constantly complaining. They're aiming to build it up. We need to be the kind of people who Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 13 when he says to owe no one anything except to love each other. Like the contention that we need to be in is the contention to outlove one another. The way that we need to be contentious is we need to be contentious to outserve one another. That would promote a a community of of life and not disruption. We need to be busy about dreaming up ways to serve and love and encourage and support one another, not how we can find fault and discourage and break down and be offended and find offenses in others. Think about it. If you were busy dreaming up ways to serve others, busy dreaming up ways that you could love and encourage a brother and sister then wouldn't that promote a harmony harmony in your community? Wouldn't that promote harmony in your home group, in your family? Think about your marriage. If you were constantly trying to out-love and out-serve, not as if we're in a competition, but your desire is to go over and beyond as much as you can do, what would your marriage be like if that was the case? What would your family life be like? What would your home group? And just spread it out from there. That's what the wise do. How can I love and serve other people? How can goodness flow from me to others? That's what wisdom does in community. Verse 31 goes on to say, Another do not, do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not envy any of, or not choose any of his ways. I think it's helpful to define what we're talking about when we're talking about being envious. And Tim Keller says that to envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do and that God hasn't been fair. Now, when we are honest, we, we look around and we see that there are men of violence at times that have what we want. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller, I think you understand. 
Now, Ferris Bueller, I don't think, was probably a man of violence. At least he's not in the show. But, but Ferris Bueller is a pretty interesting character, right? He, he's, he skips school, if you don't know the movie. He skips school, and the whole movie's about that, his day off of school. He, he lies to his parents. He lies to his, his school about him being sick so that he can just have a skip day and go have fun with his friends. He lies to get his friends out of school. He actually steals his friend's dad's car to drive around the city all day. He's constantly like just scheming and, and planning to not get caught. And if you watch the movie, you're cheering for him, right? Like you don't want him to get caught. Like you don't want him to run into his dad at the restaurant. Like you, you want him to be able to drive that car away. Like you, you're cheering for the guy that's doing everything wrong. Why? Because that's what we all want, right? We don't want to go to school. We want to have the good life in Chicago all day and go watch Cubs games and hang out with our friends. Because his life is seen as the good life. And when the good life is that, then, then you start doing other things. You start being envious of even the evil that he's doing. Right? He's, he's lying, stealing, getting his, do whatever he can to get his way. And we're for him. And that's what he's saying don't do here. When the good life is a life of power, a life of excitement, a life of money, a life of popularity, and we could go on with the list, it can be occupied by someone who is violent and wicked and evil. And we could want it. And the sagely father saying, don't go that way. It's easy to see how you could get in a place of envying even a violent man who has all the stuff that you think makes up the good life. Psalm 73 says this. The psalmist is looking around and seeing a problem. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Now, he's looking around. He's trying to be faithful to God and saying, like, there seems to be a problem here. Like, all the wicked people seem to be doing really well. We're suffering. We have problems everywhere we go. And yet, look at them. They're doing just fine. They have a long life. They're rich. They're powerful. And the list could go on. He's complaining and pouring out this complaint to God. The, the man of violence could be like this, where you're looking around and saying, like, their life looks pretty good. They have power. They, they have community around them, a camaraderie of good friends. They have, they have money. They have influence. They have the easy life. And all of these things could be envied. And this sagely father in wisdom says, don't. Don't do that. Don't go that way. He, he pushes in by saying, don't even choose any of his ways. Not just don't envy that, don't choose any of his ways. This is far from a neutral stance on a violent man and what he's after. Don't choose any of his ways. Wisdom says, don't be a part of any of it. Don't, Psalm 1, walk in the counsel of sinners or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Wisdom's response to the one of violence, no matter how good their life may be and seem, is to reject that way of life, to reject that living. And that don't, again, is needed because all of us on this side of Eden are capable of doing all sorts of evil to get what we want. And we can easily fall into thinking that, yeah, I think that, that the end probably justifies the means here. And so let's just go after it. If violence gets me the good life, at least I get the good life. Or if this sin gets me to this end, at least I get to this end. We can all be like that. And the father, sagely father, says, don't go that way. Don't even choose any of his ways, any of the ways of this violent man. However he gets the things that he gets, like, don't go that way. 
Wisdom has a better, better life that it offers out. But why? why? Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we go after the violent man in his life? Why, why shouldn't we be envious and not choose any of his ways? So the do not kind of gives way now to the why not here in verse 32. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Starting in verse 32, we're going to see a really big contrast between kind of two different categories. There's, there's some that are an abomination, and there are some that are in the trust of God. And this is going to continue. There, there are some that are blessed, and there are some that are cursed. There are some that are scorned, and there are some that are received. I mean, there are some that receive honor. There are some that get disgraced. I mean, there's clearly in the book of Proverbs these two paths and no middle ground. There's the path of folly and destruction. There's the path of wisdom and righteousness. And he wants us to choose wisely which path that we decide to go on. Because this is one not to be on the wrong side of. Because he says that the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. God hates that person. Versus what? The upright are in his confidence. They're in his circle of trust. They're near to him. The devious, the contentious, the violent person might be getting ahead in life in every single way. But if they're not strengthening the one relationship with God that matters the most, then they're failing. There's a guy like this. His name was Saul. He was well advanced in his career. He was zealous for the things of God. He was a rising star in Jewish life. He was so zealous for the things of God that he said that anybody who would name the name of Christ, I'm going to go after them to destroy them. I'm going to try to undo them and their work because he was so zealous, again, after God. And so he had all these things going for him, well looked upon by all of his peers, a rising star in Jewish life, but he was far from God. He missed out on the most important relationship that mattered most, and then he met Christ on a road to Damascus. And he turned from his life of violence and evil that was an abomination to the Lord and turned instead to serve him and worship him with his life. And from that point on, we know him as Paul. He lived an upright life. He was in God's confidence. He had intimacy and relationship with God. And then he looked back on everything that he had before and he said, that was all garbage compared to this. Like, that's not even worth comparing to what I have now in Christ. And what he had now was constant problems, constant enemies, shipwrecked, without food, without clothing, without things, a place to sleep. I mean, we could go on and on with Paul's problems. They were all over, and he says, all of this is so much better than what I had before. So much better. None of that was any good compared to knowing Christ. And that's true for all who are in the Lord's confidence that being in relationship with God is better than anything else you can imagine. It is the good life. And so you don't look at the violent man and say, like, I want that life because you know being in the confidence of the Lord is the good life. And so you're not searching for another thing. And there's no one who can have this intimacy and closeness and be in the Lord's confidence apart from doing what Saul did, turning from their way of life, turning from their ways. The truth is that God sent his son to violent men who put him to death that many might be made upright. He let the abomination of the devious fall on his own son so that many could be brought into his confidence. So don't let the desires of the flesh or the desires of the eyes and the pride of life keep you from the life that God has held out to you in his son. That's the good life. Violent and sinful people might have it all and have nothing. 
One author says it this way, that being close to Christ is better than being on top of the world. After all, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And no one can have the confidence and be in the confidence of God apart from turning from their sin. This is, he says this is for the upright. That means you've, you've turned from your way to another way, a better way. This is again confirmed in verse 33 when it says that the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So there are two paths. One is blessed, the other is cursed. But here's the thing, the, the path that you're on is going to affect others. In other words, like sin like, can't stay to itself. It always like is sending shrapnel out to those that are around, to those who are the closest. There's an aspect of one's wickedness or righteousness that affects those who are closest to them. So this is why it's, it's on the house. But the blessing is on the dwelling of the righteous. There's, there's an effect. Again, the, the wise are to be promoting a, a culture of life and harmony. And it, it's going to go out from them. Goodness is going to flow out from them. But the opposite is true for wickedness. That it's going to affect others. So what Proverbs does here in these last couple verses, in, in 32 and 33, is something that's a little bit uncharacteristic in Proverbs. That it starts to explicitly state the attitude of God in very direct and very strong language. So the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. You don't hear that kind of language often in Proverbs. The, the, the sagely father is trying to be very direct with those who would hear. This is God's attitude toward wickedness. This is God's attitude towards those who think that they're doing well, but they're walking in devious and violent ways. And so Proverbs is, is really, really clear so they wouldn't have mixed signals about what's going on here. And he's putting it out there so that the son or all who could hear would, would see, would hear, and would adjust their life according to these words. And Proverbs continues with these direct words, verse 34. It says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Scorners are, are like the violent men. Like they might have it all together. They might have a position of power and influence, so much so that they are in, are in a position to then ridicule others and be scornful toward others. And that could be appealing in some ways, but he says, toward the scorners, he, being God, is scornful. Right? They're Ridicule and their scorn is coming from, from their pride and it attracts the scorn of God. So one author has said, and we don't have it on the screen, but there are rebels in God's kingdom, but he will have no rivals. The scorn that they have attracts the scorn of God. The same scorn is seen in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, it says that why do the, ra the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're setting up their own kingdom. They don't need God in his kingdom. They, they've got their own. They, they're in no need of him. But, read in verse 4, that he, sits, he who sits in the heavens laughs, that the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell thee of the decree that the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here are the proud scorners attracting the scorn and derision of God. They think that they don't need a king. They're setting themselves up as kings and rulers over all. And the Lord is in the heavens laughing at their attempt, thinking that they might do better than him. Be a better king or rule over him. And so the proud scorners attract the scorn of God. And though it's not always evident, they are receiving the opposition of God. And so God in his mercy toward us has announced this ahead of time. So that any would-be rivals will know the attitude of God toward them. Would know that if you're going to be a scorner, that you are going to be scorned. That you are receiving the scorn of God. And that there's a better way. It's a lowly way. All glory and all power belong to God. And the way closer to him is a lowly way. Verse 34 says the end. Toward the scorners he's scornful. But to the humble... He gives favor. God is the Lord of all things. He owns all things. They're all his. He made them. They are his. He has all glory. He has all honor. He has all power. And he will never lose it forevermore. And so when we're talking about the favor of God, we're talking about something that you should want. He, He has it all. How could you not want what God has? So do you want the favor of God? Then get low. That's what Proverbs says, get low, be humble, humble yourself because he gives favor to the humble. He doesn't give favor necessarily to the smart or to the powerful or to the influential. He gives his favor to the humble. Well, there's a problem with this is who is humble? In Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar, the main character is played by Matthew McConaughey named Cooper He's talking on the front porch with his father-in-law and just kind of thinking about their life and humanity. And he says this. He says, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. And now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. And I wonder if that's not a good way to describe us. There doesn't seem to be a prevailing sense of wonder in our lives or in our culture. There doesn't seem to be a prevailing sense of our own smallness in light of the magnitude even around us in creation. There doesn't seem to be a prevailing sense of the greatness and grandeur and glory of God in our midst. There's not a clamoring to God's favor. There's not a clamoring to humility. Unless one listens to wisdom. And more often we're giving ourselves to worrying about our place in the dirt rather than looking up and seeing And wondering at our place in the stars. But we can listen to wisdom. And the humble get the favor of the Lord. But what is? What is it to be humble? What is humility? Hannah Anderson said in her helpful book, Humble Roots, she said, Humility is accurately understanding ourselves and our place in the world. Humility is knowing where we came from and who who our people are. Humility is understanding that without God, we are nothing. Without his care, without his provision, without his love, we would still be dust. Or, as 19th century pastor Andrew Murray writes, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as creature and yielding to God his place. Now, 
When we read this and we think about humility, my guess is that many of us wouldn't disagree with any of that. Wouldn't disagree with the concept of humility or what it means to be humble. Wouldn't even disagree with how it relates to God and finding his favor. But but pride is, is a really subtle worker. It works in us really carefully and easily. Because what can happen is is that we can swallow the entire concept of of being humble and of humility while the entire time the reality of humility is actually rejected. Hannah Anderson goes on to say, we must reject the pride that believes in humility as a concept but refuses to actually be humbled before God. That's pride subtly working, where we're receiving again, swallowing down the concept of humility and actually rejecting being humble ourselves. Where we actually aren't humbled before God, although we would say great things about humility and what it means to be humble. And I think when I read that, I was like, that describes me. And then pride works again. It's like, now I'm humble because I saw this, and then pride starts working. And just round and round and round we go, am I right? But do we behold God and then behold our lives and say, wow, what what is going on here? Do we ever reflect like the psalmist does in Psalm 8 where he says, like, I looked at the work of your hands and and the the stars and everything, and then I thought of, man, like, why in the world do you even care about us? And yet you do. You've placed us in an important spot. And What's going on here? Do we ever do that? Is that ever a part of our prayers? Does that drive us, the the magnitude and greatness of God in our place in the universe, our relation to him? Does it drive us to to pray to him with thanksgiving? Does it make us read the scriptures in wonder that God would speak to us? Does it make us sing with joy when we gather together? Do we gather in excitement because of who God is and who we are and that we get to do any of this? I think that's a little bit about what humility will look like in our lives. And if that's not the case then I think I have a place for all of us prideful people to start. Here's where we start. We start by beholding God in the face of Jesus. We have a pattern of humility set out before us by Christ. We read about it in Philippians chapter 2. This is speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Here is our pattern of humility. God himself adds to his deity humanity. He becomes like us, taking on flesh, born in a dirty place, and then walks among smelly, dirty people that he created. And most of them don't like him. Most of them don't want to be around him. They can stomach him for a while, and then they're pretty much ready to go because he starts talking to them, and he presses into their lives, and they're like, I'm out on this Jesus guy. And yet he, he dwelt among them. And he loved them enough to not just dwell among them, but to die for them. That's what he does. He humbles himself to the point of death. And then again, not just a normal death. He doesn't just pass because of age. He gets murdered by the people he created. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we see the other end of it. 
God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Here's the pattern of humility. Jesus takes on flesh and he has the full favor of God. He is our pattern of humility. If you want to know how to walk in humility, walk like Jesus. But it's clear that he's not just an example of humility for us. He's also what fuels us forward in our humility. He is our motivation. I didn't read this verse, but if you look back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves. Yes, he is your pattern. This is the way you're supposed to live, like Jesus lived, getting low, serving sacrificially others. But not just that, not just have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is not just our example. He is not just the one that we follow. It is ours. He is the one who actually is fueling this forward. He is the one in us who is fueling us forward to be like him. It is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus humbled himself to give God's favor to those who would humble themselves enough to know that they need it. Jesus humbled himself so that we too could receive God's favor, that we would reign with him. Though we don't receive the name that's above every name, we're really content to reign with him and let him have all glory and honor and power. Walking like Jesus in humility is wise. And that's why we can read the end of Proverbs 3. That the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. The humble wise inherit honor, Maybe like Jesus, they don't get it on earth. Maybe they're rejected and despised on this earth, but it will be that they receive honor. Fools, on the other hand, they get disgrace. Maybe it will be like many violent men, devious men, that they don't receive disgrace on earth, but it will be one day. Years of wisdom knows this. And is reaching out to all who have ears to hear to avoid this disgrace and to instead receive honor. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up one day. Humbling ourselves is going to include some do nots. There are going to be some things that you need to not do. There are going to be some things that you need to be known that you are against. It also means that there are some do's. But all along the way, we know that we do this by the favor that God gives, knowing that one day we will receive his favor as well. And in that, let's live. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your words of wisdom, inspired and breathed out and written down for us in the book of Proverbs. Would you help us to be wise? That's a loaded phrase now, hopefully, for us as we've gone through three chapters, that we'd have a little bit better concept of what we mean when we're talking and asking about being wise. So when we're asking that you would make us wise, God, part of that means is that you would humble us, that we would get low, that we'd become more like Jesus, and that we'd do some things and make sure that we don't do some things. God, make us wise. Father, there are those who are walking down a path that is leading to disgrace. Would you please grab a hold of them and turn them from those ways into yourself? May they see that life itself is offered to us in Christ. 
may they turn and receive him. And Father, would you fuel your people forward to be a people who are fueled to outlove and outserve, to think up ways to love, encourage, and build one another up. And may you receive glory as this wisdom spreads throughout our community. It's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. For a response, we're, we're going to sing a, a hymn um, that speaks about uh, asking God, something we can't just respond to in our own power. So we're asking God to take our lives and to make them holy and humble um, and to bring us humility. So would you please stand to sing our uh, response song. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love, at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let